Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Centre Media and Politics podcast. On this episode, we feature the full speaker series talk with Kristen Soltis Anderson, a Republican pollster and author of the book, The Selfie Vote. Over the next hour, you'll hear Kristen's thoughts on the divide between the millennial generation and the Republican Party, and what the party can do to better resonate with young voters in future elections. Well, hi, everybody. I'm, <clears throat> I'm Tom Patterson. I'm the acting director of the Shorenstein Center, and uh, this is our weekly luncheon series. Um, but it's great to have uh, Kristen Soltis Anderson back at the Kennedy School, who was an IOP fellow last year. Um, and it's great to see Maggie and Eric here from the, from the IOP. And uh, she's co-founder of Echelon Insights, which is an opinion research data analysis and digital intelligence firm, um, and author of The Selfie Vote, uh, where millennials are leading America and in parentheses, and how Republicans can keep up, which I think is going to be your topic today. Yes, indeed. Kristen. Well, thank you very much for having me here. It really is an, an honor and absolutely wonderful to be back. Uh, so when I was here at the uh, at, as a fellow in the fall of 2014, I was working on the selfie vote um, and was really kind of immersed in this question of what are young voters going to do to impact not just this coming election, um, but elections decades from now. Uh, the millennial generation, people who are born roughly between the, eight, the years of 1980 and 1999, um, com- comprise over 75 million people in the United States. Um, the millennial generation is an enormous generation. It's a very diverse generation. It's a very influential generation. Um, it's a generation that's largely come of age in an era where things like the Internet have been absolutely standard. Um, originally, I think, called digital natives, but now it sort of expands across this whole generation. Um, the way this generation will play a, a role in, in this upcoming election is is massive and I think really underestimated um, by an awful lot of folks. So the reason I got interested in this topic is that I have always been very interested in politics and being someone who was on the younger side of things, um, I was very interested in you know, politics from a very young age, debate team in high school. Um, And my friends always thought that I was weird because I was interested in politics. But around the 2008 election, I noticed something changed. It was no longer weird for me to be young and interested in politics. At the time, you had uh, then-Senator Obama running for president, who's beginning to energize people my age, um, get them focused on politics in a way that they hadn't been before. Instead, what made me weird was not that I was interested in politics, but rather that I was Republican. Um, I would hear an awful lot of, how can you be Republican? You seem so nice and normal. Uh, And so from that, you know, this began my my journey in graduate school into researching this topic. What has happened that has caused this divide, this rift between my generation and the party with with which I identify? Um, And there was a lot of sort of conventional wisdom that was out there that I was interested in understanding and exploring. Things like, well, but why do young voters matter? Uh, They don't really vote anyways. 
or, well, why does it matter if they're not voting Republican? Aren't they always more liberal anyways? They'll become conservative when they get older. Um, there's a line that people often misattribute to Winston Churchill, which is, if you're young and conservative, you have no heart, and if you are old and liberal, you have no brain. I think on, on both counts, I think that's incorrect. Um, but I also think that the political science literature actually demonstrates that that's not true either, um, that, that <coughs> political ideology is pretty sticky. Um, in my research, I found that if I believe it was Gallup took a look at all of their polling data going back decades and found that the way you think about politics when you first come of age politically tends to be pretty sticky. Individuals do change, certainly throughout their lifetimes. I'm sure all of us know someone who began a big adherent to one party and has switched to another. Perhaps that's even the story of us ourselves. Um, but for the most part, in the aggregate, the way people think about politics when they first participate in the process echoes throughout the rest of the decades of their lives. So the reason why this is a big deal is because in order for Republicans to win a presidential election, they simply must do better among the millennial generation. Um, had the voting age been 30 in the last presidential election, President Mitt Romney would be in the White House right now. Um, the, the fact of the matter is that young votes, young voters delivered the White House to President Obama in both of his elections. And this doesn't just mean that Hillary Clinton or whomever the nominee is from either party needs to win a lot of, of young votes to win the White House in 2016. Based on average life expectancy, someone who first turns 18 just in time to cast a ballot in the next election in November, again, based on average life expectancy, will continue voting until the presidential election of 2076. That's an awful lot of voting. And it's not always the case that young voters break so heavily away from the Republican Party. If you look at the exit polls in the year 2000, um, George W. Bush did the exact same um, among young voters as he did among senior citizens. Um, he, Al Gore winds up winning the youth vote by about two points, winds up winning the senior citizen vote by, I believe, about three points. Um, while George W. Bush won voters of who were middle-aged um, by a very slim margin, and of course that was a, a very close election. Um, so it's not always the case that, that Republicans lose the youth vote, and it's certainly not the case that the youth vote has ever been lost by over a 20-point margin, um, except the two times that President Obama was on the ballot. So really, young voters were hugely influential in putting Barack Obama in the White House, and they'll play a huge role in the future. So in my research then, I, I tried to uncover what could be done to repair this rift? Is there any hope for the Republican Party to win back young voters? Um, and I came away cautiously optimistic. I think there is a huge opportunity, even in just the last few years, um, where young voters had been overwhelmingly positive about the Democratic Party going into and coming out of the 2008 election. By the time you hit 2012, it had changed and sort of soured into sort of disappointment. This generation was certainly not enamored of the Republican Party by any stretch of the imagination, but it just sort of grown disillusioned with the process and with both parties, began to identify as independents in huge numbers, um, began to sort of reject labels, um, reject partisanship, um, and unfortunately kind of reject being interested and engaged in politics as well. Um, so I, I think that in a way this has given Republicans a bit of a reprieve. Um, this is not a generation that is fully in the tank for the Democratic Party anymore like we thought it might have been four, five, or six years ago. But it's certainly going to take a lot of work to repair that rift and, and sort of heal the wound between Republicans and, and my generation. And there are a few different ways that I, I view that as, as 
um, being fixable with, with the right kind of work. Um, so first is, is tactical in terms of how Republicans reach young voters. The fact of the matter is that for the most part, Republicans have, have, been, have lagged behind Democrats in the last few elections in terms of catching up um, and being savvy about their use of, of social media, um, their use of things like targeted television. Um, the way they deploy their message um, has, has not necessarily focused itself on effectively reaching young people the way they consume information anymore. Um, whether it's, you know, the fact that in 2000, 2006 was the YouTube election. 2006 was, was an election where, for instance, in the state of Virginia, you had um, George Allen running for re-election in the Senate, who discovered, uh, was one of the first, uh, I don't want to say victims, but first first casualties of, of the uh, the tracker era um, and the, mo the online video era when he was caught during a, a rally. Um, saying really, uh, you know, kind of horrible and, and sort of racist things to a tracker, um, sunk his candidacy and he went from being someone who might have been considered a potential Republican nominee for president to not even being reelected for Senate. In 2000, so then you had, after the YouTube election, you had the Facebook election in 2008. In 2010, you had the Twitter election. In 2012, you had the big data election. But for the last few cycles, it seems to have been Democrats that have been ahead of Republicans. In order to win over young voters, it takes a real thorough understanding of how to use social media effectively. Um, increasingly, young voters are cutting the cord. They're not paying for, for cable. They're, they're not watching broadcast TV, certainly, except maybe for live TV events, sporting events, and things like that like that. Um, being effective on social media is very important. And something that I often encounter um, is folks think that they can reach young voters by just sort of checking the box. Well, I hired a digital firm and they built me a website and we're on Twitter and Facebook, so okay, good, we've got that covered. And they, they too often think, well, you can just write a press release and post a link to that press release on Twitter and magically <laughs> that you, you've solved the problem. Um, I think the campaigns that are using things, social media nowadays to reach young voters most effectively understand that the power of social media is one-on-one -on -one connection. It's personification. It's pulling back the curtain and taking something, you know, as big as, say, a corporate brand and making it something personal and tangible that you can have a one-on-one -on -one relationship with. When your flight is delayed, you can tweet at United like it's a real person and hope that there's a real person there that will tweet back at you with some sort of resolution to your situation. Um, in the same way with politicians now, you have somebody like a Marco Rubio, who's been pretty effective at using Snapchat um, to give voters, uh, particularly younger voters, a behind-the-scenes look at what's going on on the campaign trail. Um, his campaign's very good about getting footage of those moments backstage before he goes on to give a speech, um, when he's you know just shaking hands with people, grabbing a sandwich. Um, it, by peeling back the curtain, you humanize candidates. And I think in a world particularly where young voters are so distrustful of politicians, proving that politicians are real human beings with actual hearts and actual souls and actual personalities is very important. Um, and I think this is also part of why social media allows you to convey this sort of authenticity um, that is incredibly appealing to voters across the political spectrum and across generations nowadays. I don't think it's a, it's a surprise that a candidate like a Bernie Sanders is doing so well, particularly with young voters, because he's the sort of candidate that when he says what, when he goes out to give a speech, you don't doubt for a moment that he believes what he says. He's not perfectly polished. He's not this well-groomed, perfect talking pointed candidate. Um, but you have no doubt that the things that he's saying are things that he really believes. And I think that's incredibly appealing and is very linked to why things like social media 
are becoming so important in this campaign and will be so essential to reaching young voters. Frankly, I also think just showing up on, in other forms of media where, where young people are at. For instance, President Obama um, went on to a podcast called Between Two Ferns with Zach Galifianakis um, to uh, talk about healthcare.gov right after the exchanges had first had their sort of rocky rollout as a way to talk to uh, young people about why they needed to get covered. Um, and I remember talking with Anton Gunn, who was a, a fellow at the IOP during my semester, um, who said that this was one of the biggest um, traffic drivers to healthcare.gov, was this podcast, this goofy podcast with a comedian, rather than any of the other, you know, more official stuff that the White House had been doing. Going on a podcast with a comedian was one of the most effective drivers, particularly of those young people that they really wanted to get signed up for, for healthcare, um, healthcare coverage. The other thing that, that President Obama did that's an example I like to give of effective outreach to young people is he went on MTV in the 2012 election. And this was something where I believe both candidates were invited and, and Governor Romney had a, a scheduling conflict. I, I don't know that MTV would have been a really high priority for, for their campaign anyways. Um, but President Obama sat in the Oval Office with an MTV VJ and some of the questions were silly and about pop culture and things. But at one point he was asked a question, Mr. President, Lots of young people nowadays really look up to uh, entrepreneurs. They look up to people like Mark Zuckerberg, and they want to know, how can I do that? Um, what have you done as president to make it easier for young people to start their own businesses and to be entrepreneurs? And I'm kind of this, you know, sarcastic Republican. I'm like sitting back in my chair like, oh, yeah, sure, he'll have a great answer for this. And his answer was amazing. His answer was, um, you know, we took a look at the regulations that were on the books, and we saw that there were federal regulations, SEC regulations, preventing people from raising money online. You couldn't raise money from small investors over the internet. You couldn't do things like crowdfunding. So we repealed these regulations so people can now have things like Kickstarter to get some funding for their ideas and see where it goes. And I thought that was the perfect answer. It's tangible, it's concrete, and it's actually kind of conservative if you think about it. It's repealing a regulation. But you never heard Republicans out there talking about it on the trail. They certainly weren't on MTV, and they weren't talking about what they had done, if anything, to make young voters more able to start their own business. The reality is that was something called the Jobs Act. It was a bill that came out of the Republican Congress that admittedly didn't do a whole lot else, but that was one thing that they did. It came out of Congress with more Republican votes than Democratic votes, but they never took credit for it and they never went out on the trail to talk to young voters about what they had done. So my, my first piece of advice for my fellow Republicans is they need to show up. People take the youth vote for granted. Nowadays, I think Democrats take the youth vote for granted by saying, well, they're, they're definitely for us. And Republicans just sort of write them off. And I don't think either of those is the right approach. I think showing up first and foremost is key. But second, I think it's important for Republicans, or for both parties, but Republicans in particular, to reshape their message and focus on solving the problems of the future. If you look at the types of demographic groups that Republicans tend to do well with, who is this? It's white voters. It's voters who go to church every Sunday. It's voters who live in rural areas. It's voters who own homes. Um, it's voters who are married. All of these different demographic checkboxes, which are all on a declining trend line. Fewer people are getting married. Fewer people are living in rural areas. Fewer people are going to church on Sunday. Um, demographically, this is a generation that is that looks so different from our parents' or grandparents' generation. Fun fact, most people don't realize that Mitt Romney actually won young white voters by seven points. But because the millennial generation is so demographically diverse, 
Barack Obama wins up, winds up winning the youth vote by a 23-point margin. Can you imagine that? Barack Obama loses young white voters by seven points, but wins the youth vote overall by 23 points because this is such an incredibly diverse generation. Um, so I think for Republicans, in, in order for them to reach this generation, they have to expand and it is inherently important for them to reach voters they're not used to talking to. It's not just about age. It's about re reaching voters with non-traditional family structures. It's about reaching voters who don't go to church on Sunday. It's about reaching voters who don't live in rural areas, reaching voters who live in cities. Um, in order to reach young voters, Republicans will not just have to make a generational case. They'll have to make a case that they understand the new ways that Americans are living and have policies that are adapted to that reality. So. In this part, I like to kind of challenge. There, there's this conven the conventional wisdom here is like, well, young voters are more um, socially liberal but fiscally conservative, and there are elements of truth to that. Um, so, folks sometimes will suggest, well, then the way that Republicans need to win young voters is by becoming more libertarian. I don't think that quite tells the whole story. First of all, on on the question of social issues and being more socially liberal, it is a little more complicated than that. There are certainly issues like gay rights and gay and say. Um, and, and equal rights where Republicans and young voters are very much so on a different path. Um, that your average Republican voter um, is, is not where your average young voter is. And the trend lines are, are clear and um, it, you know, there's, there's no other way to read the data on that. On the other hand, there are certain other issues, for instance, um, gun control and gun rights, where there is really not a big generation divide. And in fact, the most recent Quinnipiac poll that came out prior to the tragedy in Oregon, but just last week, um, found that actually younger voters were the ones most positive about gun rights. Um, on the issue of abortion, for instance, while young voters may be slightly more likely to agree with the label of pro-choice versus pro-life, um, the generation divide is actually not very big there. And you typically see voters in their 20s having a same breakdown as voters in their 50s. It's really not until you hit 65 and up that you see a large spike in the proportion of people considering themselves pro-life. So the generation divides on a lot of what we call social issues don't break down in quite the way people expect. On the other hand, you have a lot of young voters that while they may not go to church on Sunday and while they may not view the family as being a husband and a wife and 2.5 kids and the dog and the picket fence, um, family is very important to them. They feel very deeply about family values playing a huge role in their lives. Young people nowadays um, are more likely than Gen Xers were when they were in their 20s to say that being a parent and being a good spouse or partner is one of the most important things in life, um, more so than, than generations before. That this isn't necessarily a generation where everybody's becoming kind of individualistic and inwardly focused, contrary to what you might think given that the title of my book is The Selfie Vote. This is actually not about people just looking at themselves and being individualistic. They feel very connected to their families and their communities and feel a great deal of obligation um, to take care of one another rather than being kind of self-interested. Which is why I kind of challenge folks when they say, well, individualism and libertarianism <coughs> is the way forward for Republicans. I don't think that's completely the case. But on the, on the fiscal issues, there's also a, a difference here. Um, a lot of young uh, voters, they view big institutions very skeptically. They're a very non-committal generation. Again, this is a generation that grew up being told that you know it's responsible to find someone and get married and settle down and buy a home and save for your retirement and take out student loan debt if you have to and go to college. And these are all the responsible things to do. And then they saw their parents' generation experience record levels of divorce. They saw 
their parents' generation have their homes foreclosed on and their 401ks evaporate. Um, they went to college themselves, took out a lot of debt, and for many of them, um, they're not quite sure yet that it's paid off. So a lot of them are looking at, at these commitments that they were told were responsible and are, are, are less interested in, in making them themselves. So it's kind of a very risk-averse generation. Um, and as a result of being risk-averse, they're not terribly trusting of big institutions, whether it's big government, whether it's big business, whether it's the media, whether it's organized religion. Um, so as a result, they don't love big government. But when you say, as a Republican, ah, oh, well, just trust the private sector, trust the free market don't trust the free market very much either. Um, so it's really important for conservatives, I think, when they talk about their principles, not just to stay stuck in ideology and say, well, we need limited government. That's a good in and of itself. I think examples like Uber is one that I talk about a lot, and I'm sure you hear a lot about, um, where here you did have kind of the free market and innovation stepping in to solve a problem, you know, the, the sort of lack of effective transportation in some urban areas. Um, and it now kind of creates jobs, creates very flexible jobs in this new gig economy. Um, I think there's real opportunity to begin pointing to examples of where market forces and technology are leading to great outcomes for both people looking for flexible jobs and people looking for high quality affordable services. Um, so whether it's Uber or things like regulatory reform that can make it easier for people to become craft brewers or start businesses in their garage, I think there are opportunities for conservatives to talk about how um, institutional <coughs> reform, regulatory reform, public sector reform is what's new. Whenever I do focus groups and I ask young people, what do they think of the Democratic and Republican parties? They typically say that they think Republicans are, are old fashioned, sort of of the past, of the 1950s or of the 1980s. Um, and I think there are huge opportunities, not by talking just about slashing government, but by talking about making government more efficient, more effective, and more suited to the era in which we live, um, that conservatives can be the party of what's new and what's fresh and what's different. Um, so I'll, I'll close on, on a sort of final finding from my research. Um, a lot of people think the way we're going to win young voters is by being hip and cool and getting a lot of celebrities to go out there on the trail and tell them to vote. Um, and I, I think it's important to be engaged with culture. I, th I think that pop culture and, and politics, there's a lot of intersection, particularly in this uh, current presidential <coughs> cycle. Um, but ultimately, young voters uh, are, are not just about wanting to, to be cool. Um, in a survey that I did for the college Republicans two years ago, I asked a question at the beginning of the survey before we got into any political questions. And it was, what two or three words do you most wish your friends would use to describe you? And the young voters we surveyed, they could choose from words like cool, unique, adventurous, optimistic, open-minded. And the words that they picked were intelligent, caring, hardworking, and responsible. I think that's a value set that both parties have a huge opportunity to capture. If only they would focus on making young voters a priority, neither taking them for granted nor writing them off. And I think it will be very interesting to see which candidates understand the importance that this generation will play in the math of getting elected president and going to the White House um, as we move through this presidential campaign cycle, out of the primaries and into the general. Kristen, thank you. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> I mean, I sort of agree with the premise that kind of young voters are more up for grabs, um, in part because they have a weaker, weaker historical memory than, than older voters. But um, I think the weaker historical memory doesn't apply so easily to either young blacks or young Hispanics. Um, and um, 
and, and Republicans have a real problem there, and it's mm -hmm. not just uh, a question of putting up an authentic candidate. I think Ted Cruz is authentic, uh, but I'd have trouble seeing him as a carrier of a message uh, that would be as attractive to young people as Sanders' message is. And then the other thing about with the weak historical memory, if you look at, as you have, if you look at the poll data over time, uh, young adults are more responsive to kind of the party in power and whether they're happy or unhappy with those people, right? So that uh, Reagan, uh, Reagan, the early Reagan years actually were pretty good for the Republican Party with young people. They, were, they, uh, they, they had a pretty good draw among that young group. And then George W. Bush kind of kills that off in the early 2000s. And actually the first manifestation of that is not Obama in 2008, but it's John Kerry in 2004, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, and certainly Obama was able to galvanize that group, but he had the wind at his back because they were really quite disgusted with uh, George W. Wright. And if you look at Obama, they're disappointed, but they're not very angry, mm -hmm. right? So I'm trying to figure out how Republicans working against those two tides really make significant kind of inroads even in 2016. So you're you're absolutely <clears throat> correct that the Republican breakup with my generation <clears throat> preceded the Obama. <clears throat> Obama was able to ride the wave, but he <clears throat> didn't start the wave. Um, <clears throat> in in the book, I write about uh, how you know John Kerry won the youth vote by I believe nine points, <clears throat> um, which which is is a sizable margin, although certainly nothing even coming close to what um, Barack Obama did among young voters, winning them by a two to one margin four years later. Um, and there, it's, it's actually kind of funny, there was a, a New York Times magazine article that got written in the early 2000s um, called The Young Republicans about how on college campuses being a college Republican had become cool. It had been this like countercultural kind of hip thing to do, um, which of course had all fell apart very quickly after that article came out. Um, but you're, you're right that, that the, it's not just about Obama. And when I, when I hear a lot of folks on my side also say, well, young voters will revert back to the Republican Party a little more once Obama's off the scene, I always caution them that I don't think that's true, that it runs much deeper than any one individual candidate and that it did begin, it began earlier. And you can really see hints of that actually in the exit polls of the 2006 midterms. Now, knowing what we know about the demographic shifts that happen between um, presidential years and midterms, it's kind of unfathomable to think of Democrats, you know, just running the table in a midterm election, and yet there was such dissatisfaction then um, with Republicans and with George W. Bush in that 2006 election that you had young voters breaking more heavily for the Democrats than any age group in any midterm election going back like, since the beginning of when exit polling began capturing this generation. So you can see the seeds of the breakup happening earlier on, um, which I, I think does underscore the, the challenge of the brand problem that, that Republicans are facing. The interesting thing is that this is a, the generation is a very large generation. So you have older millennials who I think their sort of disdain for the GOP is, is fairly well baked in. It will be harder to peel older millennials away. They remember the, the, the Bush era. They, they remember September 11th and they remember the reaction to it and they remember the Iraq war and the, Af the war in Afghanistan. Um, they remember the financial crisis in 2008, but they had already sort of remembered um, a Republican era leading up to that moment. For the younger millennials, many of them don't really remember the 2000s much at all. They have come of age in an era where they just know that things don't seem like it's great and the Democrats 
uh, have the White House. Mm -hmm. And it's not that they dislike President Obama, mm -hmm. but they're not sure that, that he's the one to get things done. In 2012, in a survey that I did, um, I asked young voters, do you approve or disapprove of the job President Obama is doing? For those who disapproved, for both people, we asked why, and they could give us an open-ended response. For people who disapproved, they said it's because of the economy. Economy was the <coughs> biggest word in this word cloud we generated. For those who approved of President Obama's job, the biggest word in the word cloud was trying. He's trying. They didn't like the outcome. They didn't think things were going very well, but they were giving him kind of an A for effort um, and felt in, in many ways that Republicans were part of sort of keeping him from achieving what he wanted to achieve. So he's, he's been given some credit for that. Um, I do think, though, that if in this election Republicans are able to make a clean break, and I think it is a very open question if they will do that, and it will depend entirely on who the nominee is, um, there is opportunity there. You've got, for instance, somebody like Marco Rubio, who I think just gave a really a very interesting answer on, on questions around the Black Lives Matter movement, um, where he, you know, he did not sort of dismiss it and acknowledged that there is um, sort of unjust treatment of, of communities of color by by the justice system and by law enforcement. Um, I think there's real opportunity there for conservatives to acknowledge these issues. Um, you've seen Rand Paul, who, while he's unlikely to be the Republican nominee at this point, has tried to weigh in on these issues for a while. Um, and you also have multiple candidates on the Republican side who speak Spanish fluently, who are, are Latino themselves. Um, I don't know that that in and of itself gets you very many points if you don't have policy substance and a good message to back it up. But I, I think there is... There's opportunity to make inroads. I don't think that Republicans are likely to win over young African-Americans and young Latinos, but I think they can certainly do better than they've done in the last few elections. So students first, um, and if you could identify yourself, uh, please. Hi, thank you so much. My name is Dr. Shanice Chris, but I'm a mid-career master's student this year. And I'm from South Carolina and thinking about politics and thinking about the Republican ticket, but how do you, as I feel like when you run as a black person, then black people distrust you automatically. So is there a way that you can use social media to kind of craft where you can be a black Republican, but black people will still take you seriously? <laughs> That's a tough question. Um, I think there are a lot of other variables that would be in play there. I think it would involve, you know, do you have, do you have a message that resonates and that speaks to things that the black community is interested in. Um, so I, I think that there's a big, there's a big question there. I, I do think though that regardless of, you know, who you are, there's a lot of opportunity to use social media to build sort of a, maybe not a level of trust, trust may be too, too powerful a word, um, but, but a level of, of comfort. Um, with someone. You know, I think people ultimately want to vote for people they feel have their back and understand what they're going through. And as frivolous as it may sound, I think that when you are, are using social media effectively to convey a story of who you are in a way that is, um, you know, more sort of visual and candid than, hey, I put out a press release and here's a perfectly crafted speech that I did. I think there is an opportunity to kind of break down some barriers and show people, um, hey, I, I'm, I'm just a person too. I'm, I'm not just a robot. I'm not just, you know, a politician in a way that, you know, people are distrustful of. Um, it would entirely depend, uh, though, on to what extent someone is successful at using it and what their overall message and policy positions are around it. 
please. Uh, my name is So I think that uh, social media has been very important and influential in my own personal career. Um, I was very fortunate at a, at a pretty young age when I was writing this initial thesis about young voters and Republicans, 99.9% .9 of these sorts of things wind up getting bound very nicely and put in a university library somewhere and they collect dust for the next 30 or 40 years. And it was because I was able to, you know, write blog posts about, you know, little snippets of things that I had researched and then tweet those out and get those in front of political journalists who are interested in the topic. Um, you know, otherwise I, I would have just been kind of a, a no-name person with no ability to get this stuff in front of them. It gave me as someone young and kind of unknown in my field a chance to, and I kind of hate using this term, but build a brand for myself. Um, and I think without things like Twitter, it would have been much more difficult for me to be able to do that. On the back, please. Uh, hi, my name's Adam. I'm an MPP here at the Kennedy School. And you didn't talk anything about uh, uh, The Daily Show or The Colbert mm -hmm. Report. And a lot of the students here, I think they get a lot of their political opinions from John Oliver. So when the last time I did a survey question on this, about one out of every four young voters said that they got their news at least once a week from The Daily Show. Um, unclear how that, if and how that will change with a new host, um, but it is, you know, the the mix, the blending of politics and entertainment is very powerful. And, and I don't think that it's powerful because people look up and they go, ah, there's a celebrity I like who endorsed my candidate, therefore, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to vote for that candidate. I think it's because, um, I believe it was actually Andrew Breitbart who always used to say that, you know, culture sort of is, is upstream from politics. Culture leads, leads politics. And so if you want to influence political attitudes, influence culture. Don't pretend like the two are separate. Um, and that's something that I think conservatives really struggle with because there are not really conservative comedians. There are not a great deal of conservatives engaged in, you know, storytelling in Hollywood and things like that. And so I don't think it's just, you know, winning young voters because it's comedians and it's entertainment. I think influencing culture influences minds. I write in the selfie vote, for instance, about um, how, you know, a lot of different TV shows and, and depictions of non-traditional families on TV shows like Modern Family, um, you know, influence the minds of folks who, you know, were our sort of white middle class voters living in traditional families. Suddenly their mind is broadened, their definition of family is broadened, culture changes, and then politics changes. And so I, I, I believe that things like The Daily Show, Colbert, John Oliver, the merger of comedy and politics is very potent. And Republicans, I think, str struggle a little more to, to thrive in that world. So it's wide open at this point, so please, <clears throat> yeah. Uh, my name is Zara Khan. I'm an MPP student at Kennedy School. Um, I wonder how much you think can presidential candidates on the very far right making statements about, you know, Donald Trump making statements about Mexicans, Ben Carson about Muslims, um, affect millennials who then want to dissociate from the entire range of the Republican Party when you don't see it at all on the other side, like statements that are that intensely and openly you know, racist? This, it, it winds up putting 
more sort of center-right Republicans in a bind because they're constantly being asked to be taken, held account for things that they didn't say but that someone else said. And they're constantly being asked to either reject them and say no or, you know, to weigh in on things where um, even on the left, if, if people on the left do say things that are, are out there, it doesn't really get coverage and you never see, you know, oh, does Hillary Clinton, does she, you know, does she stand with this person that said this crazy thing? You would never really see that. Um, with that said, I think you wind up in this tough situation where, let's take the example of birth control. Um, in the 2012 election, uh, the only time Mitt Romney was ever really asked about the issue of birth control, it was in that one debate where George Stephanopoulos was hosting, and his response was, it's working fine, leave it alone. That was his, like, direct quote. It's leave, leave it alone. Um, and yet, when I did research after the election, there were young women in Ohio who thought that Mitt Romney wanted to ban birth control. They, and it's... And the tough thing is that every time he'd get asked about it, hey, Todd Aiken said this crazy thing, what do you think about it? Hey, this other Republican who's far on the right said this thing about contraception, what do you think about it? The response was always sort of, well, I want to create jobs. And that's not actually an effective, that's not answering the question. And so when you, I think some really well-intentioned Republicans think, well, when these statements happen, I can just sort of ignore them and say, well, you know, that's not me, I'm focused on what I'm focused on. And if you don't really strongly disassociate yourself from that, if you just try to change the subject, then you allow yourself to be defined by those comments. So um, I think, you know, when I hear things like what Donald Trump is saying, um, you know, it, it frustrates me, the idea that people say, oh, well, that's what the Republican Party is about. Truthfully, I think if you look at Donald Trump's polling numbers, it probably is about a quarter of the Republican primary electorate that finds what he's saying in some way to be kind of appealing. It doesn't mean they agree with everything he says that's offensive. It just means that they don't care sometimes that he's offensive. But you've still got three quarters of the party that's looking at other people and that, that doesn't find what he's saying to be appealing. Um, and so it frustrates me sometimes. It's like, ah, Republicans are the party of Trump. Well, no, about a quarter of the party is interested in Trump at this moment, and that may change by the time we get to Iowa. Um, but I, I do think it's a problem because that tends to be the stuff that cuts through. And if thoughtful center-right Republicans aren't putting substance out there to say, this is what I believe, if, in particular, they just run a negative, here's why I'm not the Democrats campaign, that stuff, it's just so much easier for that stuff to penetrate and take hold and um, shit really do damage to how people think about Republicans. Richard. So listening to your description, I was trying to think of an ideal Republican presidential candidate using your metrics, and I thought somebody who's fiscally conservative or cautious, somebody who's able to balance a budget as a sign of his conservatism, who is cautious about uh, uh, legalization of gay marriage, um, and uh, who appointed relatively conservative financial advisors. I thought, gee, it's a shame Bill Clinton can't switch parties on a Republican ticket. But what you seem to have described is a kind of moderate Republican party that hasn't existed since the late 1960s. And so there's a deep structural question. But I don't want to dwell on that because I think you've done a good job on the social issues. I want to talk about the economic financial issues. It's a party that still hold on to the idea that it's a fiscally responsible party and is in favor of limited government. The last Republican president to balance the federal budget was Dwight Eisenhower, the last Republican president under which the federal government as a share of GDP did not grow, was William McKinley. Is, aren't those narratives getting a little stale, and isn't there a need for a fundamental rethink of the economic values of the party, not just the social 
So what you've defined there, I think, is part of why you see resistance to Republican, the Republican establishment from its grassroots, rather than, than necessarily how young voters are thinking about the party. What you've defined is a huge issue within the Republican Party at the moment, because a lot of grassroots Republicans would say exactly what you just said and say, this is why we can't trust the establishment Republican Party to live up to the fiscally conservative values that it preaches. Um, well, it's 100 years now since when you kill it. There's got to be some alternative. Well, what I I think Republicans can do that I I think can be an effective way of framing their sort of economic and role of government vision is not to say that government is inherently bad, that we should get rid of government. I I think, I don't, I reject the idea that Republicans are a party of anarchists, and I I think that that's not really the way to to win (laughs) young voters either. Um, I do think that if you look at things like the way a lot of sort of, you know, public public sector unions and pensions are set up, that in many ways things that the private sector has done um, that are sort of adapted to many of the preferences of young people, the public sector's failed to keep up. And I think being a party of reforming rather than necessarily just getting rid of the government altogether presents opportunity for a very pragmatic generation. This is not an ideological generation, I don't think, either way. Um, They don't trust government. They don't necessarily trust the private sector. They just want to see things fixed. And so that's why you're seeing things like the rise of social entrepreneurship, people who want to solve a problem, but instead of going and working for the government to solve a problem, they they do a startup where they consider that they have a dual bottom line. They want to have social impact as well as make profit. Which is wonderful, but only one of eight startups is in existence five years after it's launched. So that's a pretty high mortality rate. And when you look at the private sector and the decline of unions in the private sector, what you see is the decline of middle class wages along the same time period. And so now you're down to 6% of the workforce in the, in, uni- in the private sector and unions, and you've got the worst inequality in American history since the Gilded Age. Why is it there's an example in the private sector about the way that unions have evolved well, what's interesting is that for many young people, even when they have the opportunity to join unions, they're not choosing to do so. Um, and then that's a real, you know, I think that raises a lot of questions about why is it that young people nowadays don't necessarily see see unions as being something they want to join? Um, and there was a really great... Six percent of the jobs, so the opportunity Well, and there was, there was a really interesting study done by the um, Office of Personnel Management that they put out about the challenge they have bringing young people into the federal workforce. Um, and they found that unf- the way that a lot of things in the federal workforce are structured is that it values sort of how long have you been in your chair, um, and then the benefits it provides are, you know, a pension that is, is you know, more defined defined benefit and it you know rewards how long you've been there and for a lot of young people they're saying I don't want to be defined by how long I stay in a single job because I like to move from job to job a lot Um, I want things to be I want my benefits to be portable and I don't want my compensation to just be based on how long I've been in a chair I really want to be judged on my output my productivity and um, if that means that I'm in an environment where it's easier for me to be fired but it's easier for me to rise up I'm, I'm kind of okay with that and so you know, they were trying to figure out how do we reform the way that the federal workforce works so that we can bring in new workers as our aging workforce begins to retire. But we, oh, Richard, we should get some other voices in, please. Yeah. Um, Zach Coleman, I'm a night science journalism fellow at MIT. In the past life, I was an energy and environment reporter with the Washington Examiner, so maybe you can get where I'm going with this. But um, <laughs> you did some polling recently for ClearPath. I did. Um, Shows some pretty positive responses from 
conservatives on the issue of climate change. Uh, you spoke about the Republican Party needs to, you know, solve problems of the future. So where is the party going on that when it's kind of constrained by an ideology that uh, limits the toolbox uh, for responding to emissions reductions? I think, well, first of all, the, the generation gap on the climate issue, it exists, but sometimes I, I've seen data that suggests it's not as big as perhaps the the media sells it. I mean, it exists, but it's not its not this enormous gulf. Um, with that said, you know, there are a lot of policies that are kind of in the, the left's toolkit for how you would deal with climate that don't pull terribly well, even among young people. Um, and so when you talk about, you know, what's the best way for us to limit carbon emissions? Is it to just put caps on things or is it to try to encourage investment and innovation and creating new forms of energy that produce less carbon? Um, that's, the, that's where you can get a lot of support, particularly support among young people who really are more of the mind that kind of innovation and technology is so capable of saving a lot of the big problems or solving a lot of the big problems that we face. Um, so there are things, you know, in that ClearPath survey, for instance, I think it was something like 71% of, may have been 71% of conservatives said that they would support things like additional funding for kind of a space race style um, R&D effort to come up with the next generation of, of clean energy that, that doesn't choose winners or losers, but just sort of is, is kind of a government, I don't want to say Manhattan Project style, but you know, space race style. Right, and so and so understanding, again, that Republicans are not anarchists, that we, we don't believe that there is should be no such thing as a government or that the government should have no money that it spends, but rather we need to be much more effective about what we're doing and that there's a lot of money that may be getting wasted or spent in ways that aren't effective um, and things that we can do through regulatory reform or tax reform that can make the economy grow faster that can allow for things like greater research and development, that there are certain core things like basic research um, that maybe there is actually a role there for, for government to do. Um, and again, in that survey, you know, you saw that there was not this big uh, divide where conservatives were, re they were rejecting, they, they don't love everything that we you propose, um, but there are there are things that they can get behind. So over here, yeah, please. <clears throat> Hi, my name is Ali Wan, I'm a first year uh, MPP student here. Uh, amazing presentation, thank you. Thank I really, you. really learned a lot. Two, uh, two questions. One is on uh, the domestic side. I mean, so you mentioned that there are a number of ca the, the, uh, the categories in which Republicans traditionally uh, poll well and vote well are, are on the decline. And there are a number of issues, uh, for example, LGBT rights mm -hmm. or you know, gay marriage, where you know, it's, it's been difficult for Republicans to want to be seen as, as sort of being with the time, so to speak, but not compromising their core character. And so I'm wondering on the domestic side, when you look at demographics and when you look at some of the hot button social issues, what is sort of the threshold between modernizing, adapting to the times, and kind of adapting to current uh, social trends uh, without compromising sort of the core uh, character of the party? Uh, and then also, we've been talking a lot about domestic policy. I'm just curious from your own uh, research on foreign policy, is there, is there a coherent millennial worldview on foreign policy, or are there uh, very clear ideological so why don't, you, why don't you take one of those because we've got okay I'll take the I'll take the foreign policy okay. one because I think I can do that one faster so on foreign policy I intentionally don't write about foreign policy in the book because that is the issue area where polling can change dramatically drop of a hat bomb goes off somewhere throw every poll you had before that out the window um, and for a lot of Millennials there's been huge fluctuations in in this so a couple of years ago um, you know I saw polling that suggested young voters wanted to see a dramatically smaller 
military footprint for the United States around the world, um, that a lot of young voters don't think that the United States should be the world military leader, um, that there was this sort of looking inward and, you know, I don't know that America needs to be the world police. But over the last few years, you've had a lot of YouTube videos of people being beheaded by ISIS. Um, you've got this increased sense that, that we are still in a very, very unsafe world. And there's been a bit of a change. Um, it was actually the, the polling on young voters out of the Harvard Institute of Politics that most recently showed an actual an appetite for ground troops against ISIS um, among young voters, which was very surprising to me because it contradicted a lot of the other data that I'd seen. Um, but I have no reason to doubt it, and I, I can see how um, particularly, again, for those younger millennials who are now aging into being 18 and up and counting in these polls and being eligible voters, they have less of a memory of the war on terror and the, the war in Iraq and Afghanistan from the 2000s. And so their view may just be, be a little bit different and more shaped more narrowly by, by very modern events rather than things over the last 15 years. Over here. Yeah, please. Uh, my name is Ijan Saleh. I'm an MPP student here. Um, I'm originally from Malaysia, so this question is more in, from an international perspective. Uh, before that, I just wanted to say that the, I do know your work through the entertainment sector, uh, through your appearance on Bill Maher, so that's how powerful, <laughs> that's how powerful the media That's where I get my bravery merit badge. <laughs> but uh, my question is, uh, from an interna international perspective, the Republican Party seems to be doing something that's seemingly irrational, which is, is drifting into a corner and not able to recruit people who we would otherwise think is Republican, someone like Bill Clinton, or, or even Barack Obama for that matter. Um, what's going on within the Republican Party that is shaping this uh, decisions to move into a corner? Because, um, you know, from, from outside, Michael, it just doesn't make sense. So I'll, I'll actually use some international examples to, I think, try to answer this question. So if you look at what's happening in a lot of European countries, um, there are there's more than just two parties. And you've seen these other parties emerge that capture, whether it's the, the National Front Party in France, UKIP in the UK, um, this kind of uh, populist, uh, nationalist furor um, that in the U.S. kind of lives mostly within the Republican Party. In other countries, it's able to be its own party because they have the parliamentary systems and they have a multitude of parties. Here are challenges. We've got a, a lot of people all living under the same roof, whether it's the Democratic or the Republican parties. Um, in the case of the Republican Party, it's the Republican tent, I think, is actually very large, but perhaps too large to the point where you are now seeing these very big battles breaking out. We've never really had resolution on the right about why we lost the 2008 and 2012 elections. There's a faction of the party that looks at those two elections and says, we lost because we had candidates that tacked too far right in the primary, and by the time the general came, they couldn't win. So we need to elect somebody who's not going to make mistakes, who can have broad appeal, who can be a little more moderate, and win those swing voters. On the other hand, you have another faction of the party that says, we elected two moderate Republicans to be our nominee the last two times around. And they both flamed out in the election because they couldn't get anyone excited. So we finally need a true conservative to be the Republican nominee or these Republicans are going to stay home. Both sides actually have data points that support their position. There's, there isn't a clear way to determine who's right and who's wrong here. They, they each have evidence that supports their case. But because there's never been a resolution there, you have two different wings. One wing thinks 
sort of along the lines of what I'm proposing, that we need to be thinking about the future and the demographic trends and where we're headed and be cognizant of how we're going to be adaptive and responsive to that. And I don't think you have to abandon your conservative principles to do it, but I think you have to apply your conservative principles to modern problems. Um, sort of, I would say Marco Rubio, he's got this new American century philosophy, and, and that's kind of where I see him rhetorically positioning himself. The other side, though, kind of has this Donald Trump make America great again mentality. So make America great again is in some ways forward looking. Ah, the future will be brighter, but it's very backwards looking. Um, we're going to go back to an old time when things were better. And because there's been a lot of change in America very quickly in the last few years, it, you, it would sort of make sense that you would see this cultural friction and a lot of folks get feeling anxiety. And Trump is tapping into that anxiety. Um, so I, I think you have that. Plus, separate from both of those are folks that, as we mentioned before, feel that the party's just been away from its principles. So I don't think Donald Trump's a defender of conservative principles. Um, you have folks that are kind of the Tea Party type folks that are, are more adamant about this limited government fiscal responsibility. They feel establishment Republicans have sold them out. Um, so you have that wing as well. So you actually have three kind of different competing factions now all fighting for the heart and soul of the Republican Party. And that's what's playing out in this primary. Please. <laughs> so um, Brent Coleman with the Institute of Politics. Uh, and full disclosure, I'm a professional Democrat when I'm not here, so take this with a grain of salt. Um, so on 2008 and 2012, I think that you know we did have a tactical advantage. But the way that I think we looked at it was that allowed us to talk to more young voters and energize them. But energizing for us meant getting them to show up but they voted for us ultimately because they agreed with us on the issues, right? Um, the Democratic Party in the 80s and 90s went through a lot of soul searching and actually moved on a number of issues, including defense and immigration reform, which I think created the Bill Clinton Democrats and put us back in the ball game. So I would just be curious and, and you know, take this as a straight question, it's pure curiosity. Is there actually any appetite within the Republican Party for a discussion from a substantive level on if they should move on gay marriage, if they should move on climate change, if they should move on immigration, which I think were the three things we heard from young people taking the war off the table were the reasons they supported us in 1812. I think there's a huge debate over those issues, and I think there's more of a debate within the Republican Party. on the, I think the Democratic Party has much more of sort of a unified vision of this is where we stand on these. I think there's a great amount of diversity of thought within the GOP on this stuff. So take, for instance, um, the response to the Supreme <coughs> Court's decision on gay marriage this summer. Um, you had candidates, when the decision came out, everybody really put their press release out, right? And you had some candidates who were saying things like, defy the Supreme Court. This is a ruling that's going to be disastrous for America. But you had others that said, look, I believe marriage is between a man and a woman, but we all need to love each other and be tolerant. The decision has been made. Let's move forward. And so they weren't. It wasn't 17 of the same press release going out. There is. A, yeah. There was a diversity. Diversity of thought there on immigration. There's a huge diversity of thought there, where you have a section of Republicans that think we need to, to deport a lot of people, and you have a lot of Republicans that think, look, the system is broken, we need to fix it, and we need to find a way to at least give legal status, if not citizenship. I think that there is a robust debate in the party, and I think there are a lot of folks who believe that we need to be thoughtful about putting forward conservative ideas on this, or else we're going to just let the whole debate be defined yeah, by the other side. I guess my question is a little different. I'm not talking about diversity of opinion. I'm actually talking about platform shifts, mm -hmm. right? I'm talking about 
there, you know, there may be a number of people that have different ways of talking about these issues, but you didn't see anyone in the last Republican debate getting up there and saying, as a policy priority, we need to be more tolerant of gay couples, right? Or, I accept that climate change is an actual thing, so now we're going to look at the things that you pulled on, right? So, to me, it's more of a kind of a platform debate than it is what is the range of opinions. And so, I guess that's sure. my well, question. Sure. Well, what I mean, do, but do you, <coughs> let me rephrase the question. Do you see an, you know, a moderate Republican wing that could be the new Democrats of the Republican Party and actually pull them towards moderate policy positions? Sure, that's why I'm so focused on talking yeah. about the range of opinions, sure. because while you hear a lot from the one side, I do yeah. think there are, there are people that hold the views that you're talking about, could there be a sure. Republican Party there? I don't know that it's a majority of the party, I don't know that it's a plurality of the party, but it's, it's a wing that certainly exists. I think the problem is that right now there's a lot of distrusts between yeah. different wings of the party. And so I, I'm also a firm believer that everybody loves a winner. And that if Republicans nominate someone and that person is elected to the White House, there will suddenly be a lot of people saying, look, that's the winning <coughs> formula, that's what our party should stand for. So. I think the reason why there's still not agreement over should there be platform shifts or not, do we need to move to the right to re-energize our base or do we need to move to the middle to expand, is that we haven't won the White House in the last two elections. And I think until there's a winner and a proof that this is a strategy that can work, that debate's still going to rage. Well, let's, but let's see if we can slip in one more. This got to be a short question and a very short answer, please. Yeah. Hi, thank you. So I'm Pickentra. I'm a fellow with the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. I'd also like to give you credit for doing Bill Maher's show. I'm not sure whether there are too many Republicans that are fine to do that. Doug has as well. We have another one here. <laughs> it's not bad for selling books, I'll tell you that. So. Uh, very quickly, since uh, the book Legacy came, came up, and um, apparently that's, that was the point where a lot of young people were alienated. Um, so one of the issues is, since his father is, is running out and the Bush Legacy comes up quite a lot, how should the Republican candidates deal with with the Bush legacy? Should they say, well, he kept us safe, or should they uh, try to put more daylight between themselves and President Trump? Okay. Get about a minute on that one. Sure. Okay. <laughs> okay. I think that Republicans need to be focused on looking forward. I think they're going to get asked a lot of questions about the past, and that's sort of inevitable, particularly if Jeb Bush is the nominee. But I really, my hope is that Republicans will focus their message and their effort on the future rather than relitigating the past and where they would stand on hypothetical things or things that they didn't have to make decisions on 10 years ago because they weren't in office 10 years ago. My hope would be that Republicans get asked a lot of questions about things like what are you going to do about an increasingly belligerent Russia? What are you going to do about the fact that China is, is a global power on the rise? What are you going to do about climate change? The, the, the challenges that we're going to be facing in the next four years are the things that I hope people get asked about. So that's that's my hope for 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 your your question. Kristen, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by extreme